we can't erase abuse from a child's life, from their history, but working together, we can help prevent it from becoming a defining issue in a child's life. Welcome to the Journey to Impact podcast, where we show you how to turn your unique passion into a strategy to change the world. Today, Ed sits down with Virginia Stallworth, who is the executive director of the Memphis Child Advocacy Center. This organization not only works directly with children who are victims of abuse, but they also focus on child abuse education and prevention. It's time to get off the bench. Let's do this. Here's your host, Ed Gillentine. Welcome to the Journey to Impact podcast. I'm your host, Ed Gillentine, and I'm here with Virginia Stallworth, the executive director of the Memphis Child Advocacy Center. Virginia, welcome. Thank you. Just to give you a little bit of background on Virginia, she completed her undergraduate studies at the University of Mississippi and her master's at the University of Memphis. She started working at the CAC in 1998. She's held several different leadership positions before in 2014, I believe. That's correct. Succeeding Nancy Williams as the executive director. Nancy was one of our favorite people as well. Did a fantastic job building a lot of this foundation. And uh, Virginia has taken over there wonderfully and continues to lead the CAC in a direction that, at least for Liz and I, has been one of the most impactful impact organizations, if I can say that, that we know. And we've seen a lot of them. Um, I tell people all the time, it's one of my favorite impact organizations because, you know, you can talk about having catalytic impact, but really having it and, and documenting it is another thing. And our first, just to let listeners know, our first, I guess, introduction to the CAC um, was the um, the Stewards of Children program. Is it still called that? It's called Stewards of Children. It's a child sexual abuse prevention and response training for adults. It was eye-opening, uh, almost um, terrifying, but in a good way about what was going on around us. And back then it was pretty new, and I want to say maybe there were a couple of thousand people that had been through this program. And now how many do you think have been through it? We have over 27,000 unduplicated adults who have been through the training. Um, if you look at folks who have taken the training two, three times, mm-hmm. we're, we're well over 35,000. So yeah. we've come a long way. We set out from the get-go with a tipping point goal. Um, right. You know, the idea that if we can reach 5% of the adult population with this training and this information, we can begin to see a real change in norms around child protection and the prevention of child sexual abuse. And, you know, some of what that looks like is adults are actively asking organizations where their kids are going to spend time about their child protection policy. And those same organizations, whether it's an after-school program, a summer camp, um, they are actually advertising that, hey, we're a safe place for kids. We have training and stewards of children, and we have child protection policy. And in fact, we're beginning to see some of those norms shift. That's fantastic. I mean, it was was one of the things that resonated with with us, because you want to attack the problem, but you also don't want to forget about the root. And there's a lot of information, a lot of education among uh, parents and adults that we had no idea. And I think those numbers speak to two things. Number one, the effectiveness of it, 
the fact that there's 27,000 unduplicated. But then it sounds like there's about half that again that have gone through it again. And I know Liz and I are planning on doing it in the next year or so because it's just been a while and we want to uh, refresh what we learned. Um, there's a million things I want to talk about, and I doubt we'll get to them all. But, um, I mean, you take a holistic approach. That's always appealed to me. Um, metrics are important to you guys. Um, dealing with the mental and emotional challenges among your your team with what they see every day. There's so many different ways to go, but um, we'll just jump in, see what happens, Sounds see good. how many we get to. But, I mean, first of all, sexually abused children in 2021, like, that blows my mind. It makes me angry. It pisses me off. Give us a brief synopsis on, I'm, I don't know if there's a better word, this scourge that's going on in our communities. Right. You know, child sexual abuse is a public health crisis. Um, one in 10 children nationwide um, will be sexually abused by the age of 18. Wow. And as bad as that is, here in Memphis and Shelby County, it's two out of 10 kids. And that so comes double. So that comes from a survey that was done in 2014. It's called the Shelby County Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey. And that was replicating a survey that had been done uh, some years prior uh, um, in California, and it's been done other places. And it's looking at a wide variety of adverse childhood experiences and how that impacts kids. Sexual abuse is one of those adverse childhood experiences. And so that Shelby County survey, which is a retrospective survey. It's talking to adults about their experiences as children. Mm -hmm. And that showed that 20% said they had wow. been sexually abused as a child. So it is a significant issue um, that we are working mightily to address, um, both in our prevention and in mm -hmm. our response after kids have unfortunately been abused. Uh, I would mention also that that Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey, going back to the original survey, um, showed that there are long-term mental and physical, negative mental and physical outcomes for um, kids who have experienced trauma. And so it makes sense um, on a gut level. Right, um, right. Now we have the science that says, mm -hmm. in fact, here's the data. And what... It seems like when we went through the um, the program that it was something like maybe one in 10 abused children even reports it. It's, it's a very, very low number. Um, now, I will tell you, however, that um, the prevalence overall of child sexual abuse has actually gone down over the last 20 years. And that is good news. Great to hear. That is reason to celebrate. And that means that what we're doing is making a difference. Right. It's working. And the researchers looking at all of um, this information around prevalence, because it's, it's difficult to talk about prevalence. Because sure. reporting does not equal prevalence. Right. We know many more children are being abused than there is a report. Uh, so they're looking at all different kinds of data sets. And 
what the, the, the leading thinkers um, in the field of child sexual abuse looking at all this information had to say was three primary things we think are making a difference here. Um, one is the proliferation of child advocacy centers across the country over that time period that brings together the multidisciplinary team and increases efficiency and effectiveness in investigation, treatment, and prosecution. So that's one. Mm-hmm. Two is the increased prosecution and uh, longer sentencing. Right. Um, and then thirdly is the elevation of our prevention work. Um, you know, child sexual abuse um, is not always an easy issue for people to talk about, hear about, think about. And we as a society, I mean, I've been at the CAC for 23 years, and so I've had the opportunity to see so much evolve, uh, improve, Um, change and then change back, you know, around best practices and everything. Um, And I can certainly say that people being willing to have a conversation and attend a training about child sexual abuse, we've come a long way since 23 years ago. And certainly uh, since 29 years ago when we opened our doors where, um, you know, our leadership, both volunteer and, and professional, trying to raise the money to open the doors of the CAC and um, Carol Prentice being told by, you know, businessmen in our community, look, I'll write you a check, just please don't come talk to me wow. about that. Yeah, it was um, that out of the mainstream, I guess. Yes, yes. That's fascinating. What do you think are some of the major drivers behind child sexual abuse? Well, you know, there are people people who perpetrate, who sexually abuse kids, do it for a wide variety of reasons. Um, It's hard for most of us to understand. Some people don't think it's wrong. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, Some people are sexually attracted to children. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people take advantage of access and an opportunity on impulse. Um, some people are driven to hurt children in this way, um, although they don't want to. Mm-hmm. And they're very unhappy about it, and they want to stop it. Um, is that more like an addiction, or is that not a good word for it? Well... Maybe, you know, when we're talking about people attracted to children or people driven, Mm -hmm. um, it's more likely pedophilia. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Um, And then, you know, there are some people who um, sexually abuse kids for power and control Mm -hmm. um, and for what they cannot attain in relationships with adults. So none of it's good. Multifaceted. No one, I guess, thing you can focus on. You just have to be dealing with a lot of different things. When you think about uh, the faith community, Mm -hmm. um, the past however many years, right, that's been in the news and the abuse that's gone on there, um, I sort of think of that almost as a a, – maybe that's part of the opportunistic or the control. Maybe it's a mix of all. Um, But when you think about that and the – the damage done. How have you guys dealt with that in Memphis? Because this is, some people say, the buckle on the Bible belt. And I know in conversations that I've had about it, it's been um, very sensitive. 
it's it's difficult because of the amount of secrecy and mm-hmm. around uh, how it can impact a person's spiritual beliefs. Um, I'm actually uh, today got information about an upcoming three session um, training and orientation around mm-hmm. the spiritual impact. Yep. Um, of sexual abuse and how the faith community and the child protection professionals can work together. And I'm, I'm looking forward to what we can learn from that to bring back to, to our community. And this, this is actually a Tennessee based, Mm -hmm. um, uh, series uh, that is going to be happening uh, the next couple of months. Um, we have had some, uh, good luck working in the faith community, bringing stewards of children. Mm-hmm. Yes, and and we've also had the door shut sure. by others. Yeah. So it's something that we are determined. Um, I I can only tell you based on data from about five years ago. Right. Um, but five years ago, ten percent of all of the folks we had trained in stewards of children were in the faith community. That's fantastic. It yeah. Really so is. while I was pleased about that, um, we had. Um, we had some clergy in the room with us, uh, both um, a rabbi and uh, a pastor um, of two of our leading faith organizations in Memphis mm-hmm. who were like, we've got to do something about this. Right. It's got to be better than that. And um, and in partnership with folks like that who are in leadership in the faith community, we're, we're opening more doors. But it, it's, it's a difficult issue. I'm Really glad to hear that you've been able to make some progress um, in the faith community. You know, when I think about the idea of spiritual abuse, there's something else that goes on top of the already multifaceted wounds from child sexual abuse. And you look at the faith community, how it should be a place of safety, healing, grace. Um, And all too often that gets sort of twisted to become sort of a protective place for people that commit these kind of crimes. And so I know it's really challenging to work in. You know, part of the uh, message of the Stewards of Children training is that while most people who want to volunteer at your church or at another organization where kids are served are doing it for all the right reasons, Mm -hmm. there are those who are targeting those environments where they can get access to kids. Um, And then you have situations where there's not an embracing of your one's moral and legal in the state of Tennessee, your legal Mm -hmm. um, mandate is that you report all suspicions of child sexual abuse. Right. And so we know the stories um, both here and elsewhere where kids are actually going to their clergy. Right. Because who do we go to? In, in hard times. Well, clergy's one group of folks that are our trusted advisors and kids going to their clergy who then are like, well, we're going to work on that here. We're not, not making a report, keeping right. that in the family. Mm-hmm. All those phrases that I've heard and observed and, and they've, you know, th- there's got to be a, a paradigm shift. It is what it is. And I think the faith community can have a unbelievable impact um, by getting involved with organizations like the CAC, learning um, how to deal with it, putting those systems and procedures in place that we learned about that are fairly simple, right? right? 
um, I think they have a huge role to play, no especially question. in towns like Memphis. Um, practically speaking, um, real quickly, what are some signs of child abuse that our listeners, you could just tell them about, just be on the lookout for, and when you see it, what are, what are they supposed to do? Right. There can be signs and there can be no signs mm-hmm. um, that a child is being sexually abused. Um, it could be a child who no longer wants to be around a certain person or in certain situations. It can be behavioral changes, which of Mm -hmm. course can be indicative of any number of changes or concerns um, going on. It can be a child who is exhibiting um, more sexual knowledge and behavior than is developmentally appropriate at their age. It can be regression in their behaviors. So any any kind of um, change like that is something, you know, for a parent to pay attention to and have a conversation with their child yeah. about what's going on, okay. you know, in their That's lives, what, what's bothering them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, you know, if you have a suspicion that a child's being abused, um, it is your responsibility to make that report. It's not your responsibility to know, in fact, abuse is happening. It is a suspicion right. that a child is being sexually abused. Now, now, certainly, you know, when you call to make a report to the Department of Children's Services or to law enforcement, questions will be asked, and if you have answers, you mm-hmm. want to provide that, which will aid the investigation. Right. But it really is it's the investigator's responsibility to find out what's going on, and with the help of the Child Advocacy Center, forensic interviewers get to the truth. Yeah. So it sounds like it's safe to say, when in doubt, at least call. There's yes. too much of this going on, and it's too devastating to to miss that. Um, let's shift a little bit, because the CAC across the country um, has been successful. Um, why do you think that is? What, what sets the CAC apart? The CAC model was born in Huntsville, Alabama in the mid-1980s. It was created by a prosecutor, the elected DA, actually, um, in that town, who was handling cases of child sexual abuse. And he recognized that the way the system was responding mm-hmm. um, was further traumatizing to kids. And he figured that out because a little girl let him know that if she had to do it all over again, she wouldn't tell because how traumatic the process had been. And his solution, which, you know, at the time was an experiment. Let's, let's see how we can do things differently and see if it is better. And that was the creation of the Child Advocacy Center model, which brings together all the players, law enforcement, child protective services, medical, uh, victim advocacy therapy, everybody coming together um, in a community of the size of Memphis. We're working out of one location, one facility, everybody together mm-hmm. under one roof. And the idea that kids can come one place and get everything they need that these professionals are coordinating their work so that they are decreasing duplication, and that means better for kids and families, that they aren't having to go through multiple parallel 
processes where they're having to tell the same story again and again, which was part of what was so traumatizing for the little girl that spoke out to Bud Kramer was his name and is his name. And so, again, that was an experiment um, of how we can do things better. And really, it's about systems change, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, we are a nonprofit organization and we're bringing together all these players. We are a public-private partnership um, and we are changing collectively how that system response was happening uh, before. Mm -hmm. So here in our community, um, we were pretty early in adopting the Child Advocacy Center model. And so when we opened our doors in 1992, we were the 14th Child Advocacy Center in the country. Wow. There are more than 900 nationwide and actually internationally now. And we've moved from being something that was an experiment to something that is a research-based. We have the data, we have the research that shows that when uh, a community has a child advocacy center involved, when there is a report of child sexual abuse, the outcomes are better for the children and that family. Um, and there certainly, there's a, uh, I talked about efficiency and effectiveness, and part of that efficiency is time, mm-hmm. and part of that efficiency is cost savings. So we, like I said, we've gone from experiment to uh, we're, we're no longer an experiment. It's a fact. It's a proven thing. It's a proven thing, <laughs> yeah. right, yeah. I can't imagine, and maybe there's no way to measure this, but the savings, the time savings of having those key players not in one room but in one building and instead of going back and forth to the police officers or the police station, the district attorney, um, all these different um, pieces to the puzzle, it seemed like that in and of itself would cut the time exponentially you can cut time exponentially. Can you do that? <laughs> um, well, I can tell you that uh, this is old data, um, but 1998, um, 1998 was, we opened our doors in 92, and 97 was when the first Memphis police officers, Department of Children's Services caseworkers, mm-hmm. and prosecutors moved on site working together under one roof. Um, before that, they just visited, you know, when there was an interview going right. on, but they they weren't physically located there for, you know, th- their full day. And after that, we had the opportunity, we had the funding to do a study with the University of Tennessee to look at the impact of having everybody together under one roof. Mm-hmm. And what was found in that snapshot of time right. was a 61% decrease wow. in the length of the investigation because of the coordination, because of the uh, reduction of duplication. Um, Which seems pretty important in that type of case. Mm-hmm. I Absolutely. guess any case, 61% is huge, but particularly with what you're dealing with. Right. I mean, you know, we, we want families to get to the healing process right. and being able to get through that investigation and focus just on, um, you know, safety and healing for that child mm-hmm. is, is again, what, what we want. Now, when I say uh, 61% decrease in the length of the investigation, that's the investigative process. That's not the prosecution Because, right. you right. know, sure. the, the fact is, is that. That's going to go on quite that's, some time. Right. Sure. Right. Yeah. Right. That makes sense. 
I feel like a lot of time people and organizations maybe oversimplify um, and focus on one issue. One of the things I've always loved about you guys is you're, you're balancing the complexities of what's going on, whether it's coordinating all the diff- these different parties, whether it's trying to balance um, education, prevention, and then prosecution. Um, why is holistic to you, this holistic approach? I think that's a fair thing to say about the CAC model. I agree. Why is that holistic approach so important to you? Well, I can tell you from the get-go of the founding of CACs and the perspective that um, our founders and leaders, early leaders brought to this was that no single person or agency has all the knowledge and all the information that needs to be brought to bear in cases of child sexual abuse. Um, And so that belief is not just... um, you know, we've got to have law enforcement mm-hmm. and, and um, I'm by law, right, and right. Um, child protective services in the DA's office, but there's, you know, advocacy, you know. Mm-hmm. So let me talk a little bit about advocacy for a minute. Advocacy is that work we do um, on that beginning, on that very first visit when a family comes for a forensic interview to have the advocate talk with the parent or caregiver about any kind of questions they may have and what kind of support structures do they have in place and what kind of challenge challenges may they be dealing with. And we know that there are families that come to us because of a report of child sexual abuse and that family is already experiencing a lot of other challenges in their, right. their world. Um, and then there are those families... Um, who experience new challenges because of the fact that their child's been sexually abused. And that's usually linked to who the abuser is. Um, And so family uh, dissension, um, housing issues, financial issues, any number of things. And what we believe and what we really know um, is that when families are dealing with multiple challenges, their ability to focus on the trauma that their child has experienced and to help support that child through the healing process is going to be compromised. So our advocates are there to really walk alongside that family and help them access resources and Mm -hmm. support and get what they need so they can put their focus on their child. Um, So that's that's a part of the holistic approach. Yeah. And, And then, of course, our therapy. You know, we provide... Um, evidence-based therapy that is known to have strong outcomes for kids who've been sexually abused. I used to talk about this and talk only in terms of TFCBT, which is trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, And it is a go-to model, treatment Mm -hmm. model, uh, for helping kids who've been sexually abused. But the fact is, is that there are now uh, several treatments, evidence-based treatments that are effective for kids that in different situations or different uh, that we may find mm-hmm. with the kids and the families that we're serving. So, you know, for me, that's uh, an example of our commitment to best practice Right, is that while we've been doing trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy since 2006, and we were an early adopter mm-hmm. of that treatment model at that point, um, it's not... Uh, given that 
TFCBT will always be the one and only go-to model right. or the best model. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that um, really from early on in um, the life of our organization with our board and our staff leadership, there's been a focus on best practice and having access to the research and the training to have exposure uh, to other thinking and models and be able to analyze and evaluate whether that's something that we want to do here. Right. Um, So that is actually actively going on right now at the CAC is a diversification of some of our treatment options. I love hearing that. And and that's sort of been, I feel like a hallmark of you guys since, since I've known you. Um, And it, it kind of, leads me to another question about metrics. But before we jump into that, your description of what advocacy was and is, is really important to me. And I think to everybody, because you can do all the science and you can do all the legal and you can do all the police work. Um, But in that situation, if you neglect the heart, if you neglect the emotions of not just the abused, but their their family around them that I know are struggling with, how did I fail? How did I fail to protect my child? All those sorts of things. If you forget the heart, um, the rest of it, you probably will have other children coming back and saying, I wouldn't do that again if um, if I had the chance. And so I, I'm, I've always been appreciative that you guys uh, – had the teddy bears and you had the people that would sit with the children, just sit with them. Um, but that leads me to metrics, right? Because um, also one of the things that I love is that you guys are really driven by metrics. And not only do you want to be early adopters of new therapies or new techniques, but you're also pretty quick to punt stuff that doesn't work. And I think the ability and impact organizations to be fearless when it comes to metrics, which is really hard. What are the right metrics, right? If you're tracking the wrong thing, you're probably going to get the wrong results. But if you get the answer you didn't want from the right metrics, what are you going to do about it? And I see so many organizations worry about their funders. Are they going to go back to their funders and say, you know that project that you promised us a million dollars for? We're $250,000 in, and it's a bad idea. Right, they worry. Well, if I tell them that, then I won't get the other seven fifty. Right, so they continue on. Sometimes, um, talk to us about y'all's approach to metrics and maybe some of the metrics that are really important relative to what you do. We, um, for stewards of children, we do a pre and post test, which is pretty common. Right, mm-hmm. when you go into a training, um, what do you know at the outset and at the end of the um, training? What have you learned? And what's the change in knowledge? Um, we also look ask people, have you ever taken any of these actions? And these would be child protective actions. Have you ever talked to an organization about their one-on-one, uh, poly, you know, do they allow one adult, one child scenarios at your church? Um, have you ever asked about that? Most people haven't, by the way. Right. Um, and then at the end, we ask, so how likely, how inclined are you to take any of these actions in the future? What I think is most important and most telling is the results to our six-month follow-up. So we do a survey monkey six-month follow-up. We get everybody's, we try to get everybody's emails, right. and we get most. We really do get most, and we have a pretty decent response rate to that six-month uh, survey. 
And part of the reason we have a, a good response rate is that it's like four questions. Um, we're not asking right. 20 uh, questions. 25-minute deal. Right. Yeah. And so that's six months after the training, and we're asking, so it's been six months. Have you done any of these things? And it is, it is really – it's been impressive since early on when we, we adopted Stewards of Children in uh, 2011. And um, it's been very clearly impactful training uh, since the get-go. So that's what we do in Stewards of Children. We, we mm-hmm. also look at a few other things. We capture – zip code data on the people that we train and we ask them their home zip code and their work zip code so we're able to look at mapping of shelby county and actually of course it goes a little beyond shelby county because everybody who works here doesn't live here so we can kind of see our coverage we can also look at it in terms of uh, the number of children that are in that zip code Um, and we can also look at it with um, layering over some other information like where the highest reports of abuse typically come from, what zip codes. Um, And then, as I mentioned, you know, 10%, five years ago, 10% of who we had trained was in the faith community. Mm -hmm. We're we're looking at category of who we're training. Um, Because with stewards of children, our top priorities are really, I mean, we want to train everybody, right? Sure, All adults. But when we do our kind of strategic targeting, it is... Um, traditional youth-serving organizations, you know, Mm -hmm. like a a Girls, Inc. or a Memphis Athletic Ministries. It is um, healthcare, um, and we've done some significant training at Le Bonheur, um, where we've done some significant training at Christ Community. So we've had some good partnerships in those areas because just because you're a nurse or doctor doesn't mean that you know everything you need to know about child sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure, yeah. And... um, not, not everybody knows that at the outset. It took a little convincing. Um, <laughs> then there's, of course, the faith community, and uh, then uh, schools, everything from daycare on up to higher education. So we're able to, to really look at category of folks that we're training and where do we need to uh, spend more time, right. you know, and especially like if you look at the zip code mapping and if we've done less training in the most challenging areas of right. our city, um, we need to refocus mm-hmm. and uh, reinvest uh, So it there. can guide you where to sort of focus your energies. Right, right. Yeah. You know, we know um, absolutely that child sexual abuse happens in every corner of our community. Um, it is across all socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, and there are things that can make it uh, a greater risk in um, impoverished communities, you know, where... Um, a child may be being left alone and there's access. Mom can't get pay for a, a babysitter right. or leaves child with the only person she can leave that child with and that's actually the person that's hurting the child. Right. Um, so it, it is important that we're looking at where are we reaching in our community geographically. Um, yeah. And so that's that's stewards of children in the work in the prevention world and then you know, in the other part of what we do, um, therapy would be the main thing I can I should talk about. Um, we're looking at what kind of symptoms 
trauma symptoms mm-hmm. a child is presenting with, and then we're looking at um, as we you know conclude therapy and reach our goals, what does it look like in terms of the trauma symptoms they're experiencing? So we've used different tools over the years. These are these are widely accepted tools. Um, the one that we uh, changed to just in the last year is called CATS, and it's Child Adolescent Trauma Screen. Okay. And so it's a widely recognized and accepted um, measure for looking at trauma. And we also, as a part of that, there's um, a numerical structure around those symptoms and where that indicates um, the likelihood of PTSD. Um, And I will, uh, I can certainly say that uh, many of the kids that we see are experiencing PTSD symptoms. I would think it would be a really high percentage. Yeah. The the CATS um, measure, I, I've just recently read more about ACE, uh, Adverse Childhood Experiences, which my understanding is a, a measure of trauma in a child's life. Is that similar to the CATS, or is it a totally different thing that doesn't really come into play with uh, Child Advocacy Center work? So the Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey uh, goes well beyond uh, abuse. You know, I mean, it, so it can be, you know, are you living, you know, did you have your parents divorced? Okay. Um, are you living in a house where there's domestic violence? Are you, uh, is somebody in your family incarcerated? Um, so it's very legitimate uh, information right. to to look at the degree of trauma that a child or a person, uh, mm-hmm. an adult, um, may have experienced. What it's not um, measuring is what are the trauma symptoms you're exhibiting. Sure, yeah. It's kind of like what trauma did have you experienced? Been through, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, but not necessarily... Um, what you're experiencing right now, the the symptoms from a symptom point of view. Okay, that makes sense. It was interesting reading about it, and it seemed like um, it had a lot of good information in it. So it's something that I've just started getting more and more curious about. Um, Let's shift gears a little bit more from metrics. When you think about Nancy Williams Mm. and Carol Prentice, they're really important to you personally. But why is that? What kind of influences they had on the CAC, on Memphis in general, but also on you? Yeah. Yeah. So Nancy became the executive director of the CAC in 1994. And so she was the second executive director. Uh, And I do have to pause here and say that we opened in 92. It is 2021 right now. And we've had three executive directors in that lifespan of the organization. That's rare, I should say. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, And... So Nancy served for nearly 20 years um, in that role as executive director. And I actually, when it came to work uh, for her, um, shared an office with her as the executive wow. director. That's how we were That's maxed awesome. out on space. So, right. you know, that that really made for uh, an impactful experience of getting to know each other and, and how we work and what we think. Um, and Carol Prentice uh, was our, you know, primary volunteer leader, an early board chair, and our chief fundraising champion. Um, Those two women really uh, deserve 
the lion's share of credit for where the Child Advocacy Center is today um, because they built it uh, mm-hmm. and they built they built the community buy-in to it. Yeah. You know, we would have never uh, been able to have a law enforcement on site and the DA's office on site and Child Protective Services if we didn't have the buy-in from the highest level of leadership. Right. Um, and they did that work. They built those relationships and they sustained them over a long haul. And then Carol, um, you know, she she did the work to, I mean, she she's ran, we've had three capital campaigns over the life of the center and she was the chair of each and every one of them. Right. Um, and um, so she is, you know, a champion for the center and for the kids and has introduced so many people um, to the CAC. You know, we got a gift uh, a couple of days ago from somebody who she got involved, um, who used to come to our gala that's and out of the blue, mm-hmm. here's here's a gift, a financial gift from him. You know, so even though Carol's no longer here in Memphis, um, those relationships we continue to see the the results of the, the strength and belief that that our community has um, in the work. And you know, when I think about them, I, I learned so much from them. Sure. Um, I the sense of urgency we all share the loyalty, enduring loyalty mm-hmm. and belief. I mean, we all have had a very long tenure um, right. of service uh, that continues at the CAC and that commitment to best practice, the asking of hard questions, mm-hmm. um, fairness, firmness, and graciousness. I learned how to do what they do. You know, I learned right. how to, you know, invite people into the Child Advocacy Center and invite them into an understanding of what our kids are dealing with and the hopefulness of the CAC. You know, this is about um, hope and uh, a different future for our kids. And, you know, most of us, whether you know it or not, um, you know somebody who's been sexually abused. And I, um, I actually had the occasion... It's interesting, as long as we've been around now, I mean, we're still young, I know. Um, We'll have our 30th anniversary in 2023. I think that's right. Uh, No, 2022, excuse me. Um, We did lose a year, so it's numbers start getting (laughs) confusing on on the timeline. Um, But anyway, we have had, I have personally had um, numerous now experiences, in, and I'd say the last five years or so, of people sharing with me, that uh, they came through the center um, as a child. That's amazing. Um, Many of them say, and I still have my bear. You mentioned earlier the the bears, the teddy Mm -hmm. bears at the CAC. There's this huge wall of all donated brand new cuddly teddy bears, and kids get to pick out one on their first visit um, to the Child Advocacy Center when they come for that forensic interview. And while we know for sure that teddy bears can't solve all the pain and trauma of child sexual abuse, when you have a 30-year-old adult say, I still have my bear, you know it matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I think of all that you just said and you talking about uh, Carol and Nancy and you and how y'all embody the firmness and the ans- ask- asking hard questions and the hope, but... I also, and we won't be able to get into this because this will probably be a topic for another day, but I feel like everybody on your team 
has that culture. The idea of the culture at the CAC is is really fascinating to me. But we'll probably have to come back and 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 talk about that because that's not easy, and it's something that um, I think impact organizations uh, ignore at their peril. And I think it's a key personally to what you guys have done. I, it's hard for me to talk about the, I, I would like to talk more about the, the bear wall, but it's hard for me to talk about it without weeping just because of, of the impact that it has. And I think that little bear goes back to the heart issue, right? Um, and it kind of, I don't know, it's almost like the bow on top of all that you guys do. There's so much hard work. There's so much heartbreak um, when you can't help somebody. I know there's plenty of times like that when you can't help somebody, but that bear just sort of personifies, I think, to me, what you guys do and the impact and the fact that you got people coming back 30 years, 20 years, 10 years, 15 years later and saying, I still have my bear. That tells you what a big deal it is that you guys do. Um, Talk about your own experiences as a young person. When you were standing up for injustices in the LGBTQ community in Mississippi, of all places, um, how did that shape how you take a stand for injustices against the children in Memphis and around the U.S.? The work requires courage and bravery and determination and passion. Um, I personally, the things that I get passionate about um, are things that prevent or may prevent somebody from fulfilling their true potential, from being a happy, healthy uh, person. Um, So whether we're talking about discrimination or we're talking about trauma or we're talking about lack of access, um, all of those are things that, that can impede a person's progress in life. And so that's, that's what drives me. Um, and standing up right. for being what counted. you believe in. Yeah, mm-hmm. being counted. Well, you, you certainly embody that. And um, when you, going back really briefly to just the mental and emotional pain that is a part of what you guys do, how do you deal with that? sense of loss, whether it's a loss of life many times or loss of innocence or loss of that hope that these children deal with. Like, I just want to weep now, right? And I'm not even there. Um, How do you and your team deal with that? We recognize the hard work that our folks are doing and what they're seeing and what Mm -hmm. they're hearing and the potential impact. And we take great effort to take care of our folks. Mm-hmm. You know, we have um, we have a resiliency team that plans activities. And it's not just about team building and having fun, although that's important. Right. Um, but it's about um, equipping people with tools, you know, whether that is mindfulness, you know, breathing, um, coping strategies, sharing information about... Um, how do you turn it off at the end of the day and learning from each other? Um, You know, this year in uh, the midst of a pandemic and everything being even more stressful uh, for our families and for our employees, um, I gave them all a book uh, for Christmas that is all around. um, It's a very um, well-known 
social worker who's done a lot of work in the field of vicarious trauma. Mm -hmm. And this was all about coping strategies. It's called The Age of Overwhelm is the name of it. Um, And I gave each and every one of our staff a copy of that book just from me personally um, because we know they, they... there are struggles sometimes, and um, and what we know is how dedicated our staff are. It is what keeps them going. I mean, we've got staff who are at the top of their game who've right. been with us 15 and 20 years. So they've um, figured out that healthy balance to turn things off. Um, you know, I'll say that we also have generous PTO, pay time off, mm-hmm. and encourage people to use that. And um, we also have an employment uh, assistance program uh, called Concern, and that's free counseling. Right. And, and I will tell you that um, I get the reports on usage, which is yeah. just numbers. It's mm-hmm. not it's confidential. And there are people using it, and I am glad to that's see great. that Yeah. Um, because we all need a little help every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Probably going back to the early days of the CAC when the subject was simply taboo, uh, counseling is not that um, far removed from being a taboo thing to do and, and maybe even a sign of weakness. But I know I know the older I get, the more important it becomes. And uh, so I, that's a, yeah, that's really good. Uh, we got to land the plane. Okay. What have we missed? What, what did, what should we have talked about <laughs> that we didn't? Just revisiting um, the impact of abuse um, and the potential of healing Mm -hmm. um, and what happens at the CAC and that message of hope. Um, What we know, what we see, we witness, is the resiliency of kids, the courage of kids each and every day at the CAC. And we can't erase abuse from a child's life, from their history. But working together, we can help prevent it from becoming a defining issue in a child's life. And so the message of the Child Advocacy Center is really about hope and kids being the kids that they all deserve to be, happy, free, and safe. And, you know, there are times when I hear very well-meaning people say, oh my gosh, this has happened to this child. They'll never be the same. Mm -hmm. Well, we see it at the CAC. We see kids be better, right? Yeah. Um, And we have moms and dads tell us how much they learned in counseling with their child Mm -hmm. that is helping them be a better parent and uh, communicate better with their child, that there are outcomes uh, beyond dealing with the trauma uh, that the child has um, dealt with, um, yeah. so so it is. It's a it's a happy, positive um, thing, and and you know, and that that has a relationship to what we were just talking about is how do people do this work? Right. Well, we do it because we know it results in good things for kids. Yeah. yeah. I um, often wonder. I see. I hear numbers that you guys work with. I think you guys see faces, mm-hmm. and I think that can drive you to get up in the morning and do it again. And I think for any person involved in impact, um, at some point you got to get to faces. You got to get to people. You can talk about um, 
pure water in Africa, you can talk about um, discrimination against women in the Middle East. Um, and you can talk about numbers and money all you want, but when you see those faces, it, it becomes a driver. Um, as we wrap up, there are always three things I like to ask people. Uh, one quote, one book, and one person. So I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. You are putting me on the spot. Um, if you could pick one quote, it doesn't have to be like, it could be something new or it could be something that drives your life, like this foundational. But what's one quote you would share with everybody today? Um, well, yeah, what would that be? And you can take your time. Okay. Uh, it's a it, the first quote that came to mind, and it's just one that mm-hmm. um, uh, has you know been put forward um, for a long time, and and certainly in circles of people who are trying to make change. Um, and I'm going to hope that I get it right. Um, never doubt that a small group of people can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing or that ever does. Right. So that like was that. paraphrased. That was I, good. I believe. That was close <laughs> enough. That was close enough. And now, it, it, if it's not exact, it becomes your quote. Okay. Right. So you'll be you'll go down in the annals of history as the person that that uh, said that. Um, one book you'd recommend doesn't have to have anything to do with this topic. It could be something you read recently. I will just share a book that few people probably know about um, that marked a significant shift in my uh, worldview mm-hmm. um, and my life trajectory. And um, it's a book called Coming of Age in Mississippi by Ann Moody. And it is a, a memoir Um of her work in the civil rights movement in Mississippi. Wow. And it was um, new material for me, a new understanding um, of our history, um, and it made, it widened my understanding of the world around me. Mm -hmm. Um, And it also um, excited me about being involved in doing work that you're passionate about, that you believe in, that seeks to change things in our world that that you'd like to see be different. That sounds fantastic. I'm going to get it. That's one of the dangers of doing these these interviews is everybody's got a book. So my stack's getting big. But um, it is interesting, too, so far not a single book has been – I don't know, like a New York Times bestseller or something that I've heard of. They've all been uh, different, different genres. So it's fascinating to me. Um, Last but not least, because we've already talked about a couple of people that are significant in your life, but name us one person who significantly influenced your life, and in 30 seconds or less, why or how? Oh, my gosh. These were not (laughs) in the questions you sent me in advance. I had to surprise you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, You know... um, so I will just, uh, we've talked about Nancy Williams and mm-hmm. we've talked about Carol Prentice and they both were extremely impactful. I have a few other people that have been in my world who asked me quite tough questions. Right. Um, a coach, a professor in grad school um, that, that were very Im- impactful yeah, mm-hmm. in building, helping me build myself to where I am today in terms of leadership and quality and whatnot. Um, but I, I would say my spouse, mm-hmm. um, Susan McKenzie, um, 
who we've been together 29 years and, um, you know, just believing in me, mm-hmm. totally believing in me and supporting me. You know, I, I came to Memphis um, having lost a job, oh, wow. i.e. being fired from a job as a waitress. Oh, wow. And um, she always knew that I could be sitting um, where I'm sitting today as the executive director of of an important nonprofit in our community. That's amazing. Even when I didn't think I could. Isn't that cool? Yeah, when people see mm-hmm. that in you that you can't see. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, where can our listeners go to learn more about you, the CAC, uh, and and just uh, even the, the national CAC for those that aren't in um, Memphis. Memphis. Sure. Our website is memphiscac.org. Okay. And so lots of good information uh, there and ways to get a hold of us. And then the National Children's Alliance is our national accreditation and membership organization. It's mm-hmm. based out of D.C. Um, and I couldn't quote you their website, but it's National Children's Alliance. You'll find it. Perfect. Perfect. Well, I wrote down several words uh, as we were talking. I wrote down resilience. I wrote down courage. I wrote down passion. Um, I wrote down potential, but I wrote down, underlined, and circled hope. And I think um, that's what you've communicated today. I know that's what the CAC does. I know for Liz and I, um, there's only a few organizations that we would unequivocally say to people, you know, if, if you're limited with your resources, time, money, or whatever, and you could only pick, you know, one, the CAC would be one of those that we trust you guys to do what you're called to do and to do it well. And so I would say to those, I don't usually do this, but I would say to those that are listening, that if you want the epitome of an impact organization, um, the Memphis Child Advocacy Center is one of those. And uh, if you're looking for a place to get plugged in, if you're looking for a place to fund impact, this is you. You will find no better place. I'll put it that way. So, thank you, Ed, for that. We'll wrap it up now, Virginia. Thanks for being with us, uh, and thanks again for being a leader in an incredibly challenging and yet an incredibly critical uh, part of our city and our world. Um, thanks also to our listeners for joining us today. If you want to learn more about Impact, edgellantine.com is a great resource for some Impact articles for white papers. It's got website links to places like the Memphis CAC and other resources that we hope are helpful to you on your journey to Impact. We've also got an archive of all of our podcasts and other interviews. You can purchase a copy of the book, Journey to Impact, in either its printed form on any major digital platform or through our website, um, Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. And please also reach out to us. Let us know what your thoughts are about this podcast or any of our other podcasts. We want to hear what you're thinking, and we want to hear what you have questions about or what topics you want us to explore. Your input is heard truly, and it drives what we do. Thanks for listening. As always, you can find links to the books and organizations that were discussed in this episode in the show notes. As Ed mentioned, please reach out and tell us what you like about the podcast as well as what you want to hear more of. You can email ajourneytoimpact at gmail.com. Until next time, embrace, build, act.